We're going to study tonight a tshuva of Rabbi Avram Weinfeld, the Lev Avram. Rabbi Weinfeld was a Rav, a Posek, Talmud Chacham in Muncie in the last century. He was not necessarily the greatest Posek of his generation. He wasn't uh, not as well known, as influential as Ramosha Feinstein or Sholem Zalman Orbach, but he was a brilliant and, in particular, fascinating and independent-minded Posek. He said some of the most uh, interesting, and he, 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 was a big, he was a big believer, both in theory and in practice, of following the truth wherever it led him, following the logic of an argument, sometimes ending up uh, in some very uh, unusual or very uh, lonely places occasionally. A fascinating, fascinating thinker. The tshuva we're going to study tonight is a tshuva on a subject, an incident that was one of the most uh, sensational, dramatic, moving even, episodes of the 20th century, also one of the most gruesome and macabre. Uh, A classic question for Rabbi Weinfeld to discuss. His analysis is not particularly groundbreaking. It's probably in line with the consensus. But nevertheless, the case itself and the very fact that he decided to discuss it is, uh, is typical for the man. And most of his tshuvas don't discuss, discuss such sensational cases, but somehow this is a very fitting, fitting tshuva for the Lev Avram. In, in uh, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 was heading out of Uruguay, heading for Chile. The, the plane had to cross the Andes Mountains. The pilot uh, went up to cross the mountains, thought he had already crossed the far side of the mountain, began to descend. Unfortunately, it was poor weather, couldn't see clearly. He was still, unfortunately for everyone on board, he was still on the near side of the mountain when he began to descend. The plane crashed the mountain, crashed into the mountain. Pilots were killed. There were uh, 45 passengers and crew. Many of them, a number of them, were killed on, in the crash or, or afterwards. It was freezing. There were wounds. A number of them died, but a number of them, about 16 or so people, more, a couple dozen people, survived the initial crash, and they were stuck in the Andes. Remote location doesn't begin to cut it. People searched for them. They were searched. Apparently, they couldn't see the white fuselage of the plane against the backdrop of the white snow. They called off the search after a few days, and a couple of dozen remaining survivors were stuck in middle of nowhere, literally in middle of nowhere, for months. They were stuck out there without proper clothes, with virtually zero food, zero food. and uh, Rabbi Weinfeld, when he discusses this case, he says they were cut off from the world. Not entirely accurate. They had a radio. They could listen to, to radio broadcasts from the rest of the world. They heard the exciting news that the search had been called off. They couldn't actually communicate. Out, they couldn't send any transmissions to the rest of the world. So there they were, stuck in the middle of nowhere, freezing to death, no food, no hope of rescue. Eventually, somebody actually, a couple of them, crossed, climbed the mountain without clothes, without equipment, climbed the mountain, walked for days with uh, ver- eating virtually nothing, managed to, managed to notify the world of the, where they were, and they were rescued. And many of them survived. About 16 of them, I think, in total survived. The problem was, going through all this time without food, they had to eat something, or they were all going to die. The only source of food and protein they had were the bodies of their fallen comrades. 
there were the pilots, other people who died, and they realized the only way they were going to survive was uh, not to put too fine a point of it, a point on it was by cannibalism, by eating the dead. They had a few chocolate bars, some, some nuts, a couple of fruit, some wine. They ate, it, they ate whatever they could. They ate for a few days, eating almost nothing. They realized they weren't going to survive unless they ate the dead. Uh, they, the horror, they, they were still sane enough, they remained sane enough to realize uh, the horror of what they were doing. It was a, uh, many of them apparently were devout, were religious people, Catholics, they, 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 they couldn't decide what to do. Some of them refused to eat them initially. They tried eating anything that they possibly could. The seat cushions, the leather. They realized the chemicals weren't good for them and they couldn't do it. Eventually, they had literally no choice. It was either starve to death or eat the people. So they ate the bodies of their uh, former friends and passengers. They, uh, they, one of them, according to the accounts of the story, one of them brought the, brought the, the verse from the New Testament no man hath greater love than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Those who were dead maybe didn't choose to do that, but that's what they were doing. They ate each other, and I don't think they killed, I don't think they killed each other. I, I don't think they actually resorted to murder or to fighting, but uh, those who were dead, there were plenty of dead. Those who were dead, the living ate them and survived. So they made it, and uh, again, a number of them made it. They had incredible feats of human endurance and determination. They made it out, uh, about two dozen of them, 16 of them. Eventually, this question made it to Rabbi Weinfeld. He was asked, uh, the tshuva is titled, Al-Dvar Achilas Besar Adam B'Makom Pikuach Nefesh. The question is, can you eat human flesh in a, uh, in a situation of Pikuach Nefesh? The Shaila was asked in Tufshin Lam and Gimel, about a year after the story had occurred, in 1973, around, around this time of the year, maybe end of 1972, beginning of 1973. The, they asked him this question, the way, the way he describes the question, he says, I want to discuss, the, n- nobody asked the question while it was going on. They had no communication with the world, outbound communication, but the question came to him after the fact. He refers to, the information that, uh, the sensational news that was going around the world on this terrible affair. An airplane crashed among the mountains. And many people were killed immediately. Avon Nishru B'chayim Yud Gimel Anashim, he says. Thirteen people were alive, the way he brings the story. Hayusham Belishim Kesher Olam, no communication with the world. As we noted, they, they, had, they had some inbound, they, they could receive radio broadcast, but no, uh, no outbound communication. Lo Hayalem Malechel, they had nothing to eat. V'achlu B'sar Mesim Rechman Litzlan, they ate the bodies of the fallen. Malaf Kvot Terasa Sha'alem Lefi Das Teres Yenemak Dojo Shaparavdi. These people were Catholic, some of them. They had Catholic sensibilities. They, they, they had moral qualms. They debated it. They eventually decided to do it. What, is, what does the Torah say? What should you do if you're stuck somewhere and your only chance of survival is to eat uh, dead humans? Now, again, I apologize in advance for the somewhat uh, graphic and gruesome nature of this tshuva. The truth is, Rabbi Weinfeld himself apologizes for this. All the way at the end of the tshuva, he writes that he concedes this entire discussion, he says, this entire analysis, it is kind of revolting, he says, it, it, it offends the, the tender sensibilities. However, he says, I'm going to discuss it anyway for reasons that he gives, we'll get, to, we'll get to it at the end, we'll see the reasons why he feels it's worth discussing, even though it wasn't an actual practical question at this time. So, nevertheless, this was the Shiloh. Cannibalism, can you resort to... Can- Again, we're not talking about murdering people to eat them, we're talking about people who are already dead. Can you eat the bodies of the fallen? 
if that is your, uh, if that's your only chance to survive, a very simple, stark, classic question, what is the halacha? Says Rav Weinfeld, Tshuva, Lanias daiti, ain kol safek, tivamatsev shal pikuach nefesh, shaper avdi. If it is literally a matter of life and death, if human flesh is all between them, all that stands between them and death by starvation, then it is mutter. And the, and the classic principle applies. The, the classic rule of halacha applies. Ein lecha shum davar homer mifnei pikuach nefesh levad mishalosh averus There are only three averus that one is not permitted to do in a situation of pikuach nefesh. This is not one of them. Whatever isser is involved in the consumption of humans. There are, cert- there are certainly various Yisurim involved in normal circumstances. We'll discuss in a little more detail soon what those Yisurim are. But whatever those Yisurim are, they, they do not, just like the laws of eating non-kosher food and Chol Shabbos, don't apply in a situation of Pikuach Nefesh. The prohibition against consuming the remains of humans does not apply in a situation of Pikuach Nefesh. This was so obvious to me. I, I didn't even think this is worth even writing down. Everyone knows this. These prohibitions involved in eating Besar HaMes. What are these prohibitions? The prohibition against uh, behaving disrespectfully toward the dead. These are Hanashal Mace. You know how derive benefit from human remains. They're certainly Usr. But are they, are they more Hummer than Chil Shabbos? We all know the rule. You can, you can drive in an ambulance. You can do any malacha that you need to, to, to save somebody from dying. So why should these Yisurim of Chilos Basar HaMais and Nivla Mace, why would anybody think they'd be, they'd be stricter than Chil Shabbos? So it would seem to be an open and shut case. Not much to talk about. Lev of Ram goes on for several pages, about three or four pages, as Chuva is. And the main concern he has, he brings up right away, El Ashri'isi B'Sefer Shalos most of his tshuva revolves around a, a famous uh, idiosyncratic ruling in the Sefer Binyan Zion. Binyan Zion was the Sefer of Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, the author of the Aruch Lener, a great German postsake of about two centuries ago. And he was, my father always would point out, he was one of the first uh, modern postkim with a university education. Many of his tshuvas were actually published in, in, in a journal that he, uh, that he founded, the Shomer Tzion Hanemon, I think it was called. And uh, he, was, uh, he, was, he was an important, an important postdoc of his time. He wrote Binyan Tzion as a rabbinic classic. He wrote Aruch Lener, the celebrated commentary on Shas. He wrote Bikure Yaakov, on the, which, which is one of the main, main, main authoritative modern works on the laws of Sukkah and Arba Minim. He was a great postdoc in his time. He has, in a series of tshuvas, which again, were originally published, I think, as essays in, in his journal, he has a very, very idiosyncratic, very controversial position, in which he argues, essentially, he develops this, this theme in various ways, and he has different formulations of his doctrine, but his basic doctrine is, even though we say all of Eris, all, all almost all of Eris, except the cardinal three sins, are set aside in a case of Pikuach Nefesh, that, is, that refers to Ben Adam Lamakum. Ritual Averis, eating treif, chil Shabbos, Averis, where, which are not crimes against other humans, which are only ritual offenses, then Achash Baruch Hu says, look, v'chai bahem, I want you to live, don't worry about doing my mitzvah, Hashem says, if you need to violate them to save your life. However, says the Binyan Sion, when you're dealing with the rights of another human being, of another Jew, then... God is not mochel. It's, it's, it's another person has rights here. He says, you can't infringe on someone else's rights even to save your life. 
That's basically the position he takes. He develops it over pages and various nuanced versions. But that's basically the doctrine of the Binyan He quotes the Binyan Tzion in Simon Kofayin, Kofayin Aleph. You're not allowed to save yourself by causing degradation, humiliation of someone else. The, the classic actual ruling, the actual holding of the Binyan Tzion is was that if a person is in danger and he wants to do an autopsy or somehow violate the dignity of another human being, a, a deceased human being, in order to save his life, Binyan Tzion says, Asr. It is prohibited to, to cause nivel hames in order to save in order to save yourself, even as, even as a matter of life and death. And he's cholek, to speak about this machlokis a little bit, this is one of the most uh, important and uh, fundamental discussions in, uh, in, in halacha of the last several hundred years. The question originally discussed by the Nod Bihuda, then by the Chasim Sofer, then by the Binyan Tzion, the, the machlokis was, the question was, autopsies doing an autopsy on a deceased human being in order to learn more about the, the condition that killed him, to learn more about anatomy and, the, and, and so on, in order to be able to, do, to, to help human beings in the future. That case of Nodi Behuda involves someone who died of some kind of kidney stone or something like that. They actually tried to operate on him. The operation failed and killed the patient. And the surgeons wanted to open up the patient to see where they had gone wrong, to learn more about the internal anatomy, to see how they can improve their technique, in the hope that the next time they have to cut into someone, they will do a better job, and they will not kill him, but hopefully save him. So this, was, uh, this was brought to the Nodbihuda eventually. Nodbihuda ruled as follows. He ruled, if there, would be a, if there would be a direct line to another patient in danger, two people are suffering kidney stones, and the first one just died, we just killed him on the operating table, and if we... If we dissect him, we can see where we went wrong and save the other patient who's sitting right here, suffering and dying, suffering at least in front of us now, that would be mutter. Because even though, even though an autopsy constitutes nivel ames, nivel ames is normally usser, nevertheless, all prohibitions are set aside in the face of pikuach nefesh. So if we have a, 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 a clear opportunity to help a concrete case of someone suffering right now, someone, someone in, in mortal danger right now, we could do it. We could do Nivel Ames to the first one. However, Nodbi Huda says, that's not the case here. You don't, have so, you don't have a specific person who's in need of your technique right now. You're just hoping that by dissecting the, the one, the, the, the deceased, you can improve your surgical technique in general to the extent that the next time the situation arises, you'll have more of a chance of saving him. That's not considered Pikuach Nefesh. Pikuach Nefesh has to be Chola B'fanenu, a very, very famous uh, doctrine of the Nodbi Huda. We only allow pikuach nefesh when there is a specific, concrete case of someone we can save right now. We don't. We don't allow. Uh, we don't allow vi- the violation of isurim for the general advancement of medical science, even though we have reason to believe that they, this will result in saving lives in the long term, or in the future. That's not a good enough hatter. He says you have to have chola b'fanenu. Therefore, yes, in theory, if you could save somebody else, if there's a chance of saving somebody else, a concrete, specific somebody who's here right now suffering. That would be mutter, but we don't allow it for the sake of the general advancement of medical science, even though we hope that by doing that, we'll save people in the future. 
Chasam Sofer rules essentially the same thing, essentially agrees to this position, this distinction of the Nod Bihuda, and that is the position accepted by most poskim. That's why most poskim will not allow an autopsy for the general advancement of medicine. They allow, poskim allow autopsies in certain specific cases, certain forensic cases, criminal contexts, and other contexts. We discussed this in the past, but in general, poskim do not allow autopsies simply for the in the interest of the furtherance of medical science. However, the Binyan is even more machmer. Binyan says, we, don't allow, we would not allow an autopsy even in the case of Cholob Even if there's somebody else right now, right here in front of us, whom we believe we could save by doing the autopsy, we still would not allow it. Because by doing an autopsy, we are infringing upon the rights of the dead. Even though he's dead, he still has rights. He has the right to his dignity. It's considered gazelle and bizarian amaze to to do an autopsy. It's not just a ritualist it involves an infringement of the rights of your fellow Jew, and therefore the B'dian has this extraordinary chumrah that you would not be allowed to do the autopsy even if that meant saving the life of a Jew who is present. And that's, that, that's, where, that's where he articulates this doctrine. That which we say that all mitzvahs and averas can be set aside in the face of Pikuach Nefesh, that refers to mitzvahs benadim l'makom, does not refer to mitzvahs benadim l'chaver. Now, one of the main source, the main locus for this discussion involve, is, is, revolves around a very curious, very interesting Gemara in Bavakama. It's an Agadita Gemara, it's not a Halachic Gemara, but the, not, at least not entirely Halachic. The Gemara in Bavakama goes as follows. It's discussing a, a Pasuk, a group of Pesukim, in the end of Sefer Shmuel base. The, 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 the entire parak there discusses three of David HaMelech's great heroes and the heroic feats that they did. One of the episodes the, the Navi relates is that in the middle of a particular campaign when David and his men were fighting Plishtim, the Pasuk says, Vayisave David Vayomer. David had a craving for something and he said, Mi Ashkeni Mayim Ibar Beis Lechem Asher Bashar. Who will bring me water from a certain cistern, a certain, uh, so some water that was in Beis Lechem, Beis, the Asher Bashar. This particular water source was behind enemy lines. In order to get water from there, Somebody had to break through the Plishti lines, get the water, and come back. Alive. Three of the, these three noted heroes the Navi is, refer- is discussing, they broke through enemy lines in some kind of commando operation. They broke through enemy lines. They brought him back the water. And that, that, that's, the, that's the story, the part that's relevant to us in the, in the Navi. Now the Gemara understands this in a somewhat literary way, in a somewhat uh, in a somewhat allegorical way. The Gemara says David did not have a craving for water. David had a craving for Torah, which is symbolized by water. David wanted when he wanted water, it means he wanted a to, to learn a certain halacha. He wanted a halachic ruling on a particular case, which uh, a particular situation in which he found himself. When he when he said, "Who can go to base lechem?" It meant that he wanted somebody to uh, he wanted somebody to ask it to ask a question to ask to ask the Sanhedrin to ask somebody to ask uh, to ask to ask a halachic question and bring him back the answer. What was the question and what was the answer? So the Gemara brings several different variations, several different versions of what the question was and what the answer was. We are interested here in one particular version of the story. Rav Huna says. There were Gedishim de Saorim de Yisrael Havu. There were fields in which there were piles of barley. 
the Plishtim were using them for cover. They were hiding in the Seorim, and they were posing a threat to David's army because a significant advantage to enemy forces is obviously uh, a threat to your army. He wanted to know, can I burn down the... can I destroy these, these, these fields, can I burn all this barley to burn out the Plishtim, to take away their cover, to kill them, or to force them out into the open... The way he posed the question was, can I save myself by destroying someone else's property? They belong to Jews, these, these, these fields. Can I destroy these Jews' fields without their permission in order to save my own life, in order to save the life of myself and my army? What was the answer that he received from the, from the Sanhedrin, that, that he, the Chacham he asked the question to? It is usher for someone to save himself at the cost, at the expense of his friend's property. However, in your case, it's mutter anyway, for a different reason. You are the king. A king has special prerogatives. A king is allowed to destroy property when he needs to. So as a king, you have the right to do this. But in general, this would not be mutter. This would not be mutter. That was the psak in this Gemara. Now, the Gemara goes on. The Gemara, the Gemara then tries to choose between the several different accounts of the story. We only mentioned one, but the Gemara is trying to decide how the other psukim involved, the other psukim in this narrative read according to the various explanations. So the Pasuk says later, that it says he saved it. He saved the field. What does it mean he saved the field? So according to this approach, that the question was whether he should burn the field, the Gemara says, He wanted to burn the field. He didn't burn it. He saved it. What does that mean? Why didn't he burn it? Rashi says, He declined to burn the field. Why? I don't know about Melech Parit's Gedder, but he declined to burn the field because he said, It's Osir to do it. Therefore he said, I will not do it. And he decided to leave the fields alone. Tosus disagrees. Tosfus seems to disagree. Tosfus says the entire discussion is not whether you're allowed to do it or not. Of course you're allowed to do it. Tosfus says, the whole question was, the question is, do you have to pay for it? David knew he was allowed to do it. Tosfus means. You can do anything for Pikuach Nefesh. So what was the question? Tosfus says, yeah, the question was, do you have to pay for it? David said, we're, my, my men are in danger. We have to save ourselves by burning down the field. Of course we're going to do it. The question is, do we have to pay for it? But Rashi seems to say no. Rashi says the question was, should he do it or not? The answer was, no, you should not do it. So he did not do it. He left the fields alone. He didn't burn them because because many achronim bring this Rashi as essentially the first, the first clear articulation of the doctrine of the Binyan Rashi seems to be saying that you're not allowed to destroy someone's property to save your life, even if your life is in danger, you are simply not allowed to steal from somebody else to damage someone's property in order to save your life. Not all Akronim agree that Rashi means that. Some Akronim say it's unthinkable, it's un- completely untenable. Now what Rashi means, we'll see the Leib of Rav himself is among that, that school of thought. But many Akronim say it's not what Rashi means. But the simple reading of Rashi is, David did not burn the field because it is simply flat out prohib- prohibited to damage someone else's property, even in order to save your life, period, full stop. That's the Binyan Tzion's first step of his argument. I have a Rashi, he says. Rashi, the way Rashi understands this Gemara, it is prohibited to damage someone's property in order to save your life. Even according to Tosfus and the Rush, and that's how we pass in Shulchan Aruch, that the entire question is whether you have to do it, whether you have to pay or not. Have, don't have to pay, you're definitely allowed to do it. The only question is paying. The language of the Shulchan Aruch is, following Tosfus and the Rush, is 
is even when a person, gezel is uh, absolutely prohibited, even when a person's life is in danger, you're not allowed to steal. You can take something and plan to pay it back, but you can't steal outright. That's how, that's how Tosa says, based on the rush. Asl hatzlatz mamon chaveiro means you're not allowed to take something without intending to repay it. You can take it, but you have to plan to pay it back. Not like Rashi. So David Amalek was allowed to burn the field as long as he planned to pay it back. Vayatila would mean he burned it, but he planned to pay it back. He, 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 he wrote an IOU, he, he, he committed himself to pay back when, when he was able. Says Ibn Yantzion, even according to Tosfus, even according to the Shulchan Aruch, that just means you can steal insofar as you have a, a plausible, a possible way of paying it back. I'll get money, I have money at home, I'll earn money, I'll get money, eventually I'll pay him back. When it comes to a mace, he says, when it comes to Nivel HaMace, there is no chance of ever paying the mace back. He doesn't need your money. Once, once you've violated his dignity, that is something that uh, you can't undo it, you can't make it up to him. Therefore, the Benin says, even Tosfus and the Rush would agree that it's Usser. Rashi says it's always Usser. Tosfus says you can do it insofar as you plan to pay back, but you can never pay the mace back. So even Tosfus would agree that it's Usser. It's only mutter if you can realistically hope to pay it back. If you can't realistically hope to pay it back, it's usher even according to Tosfus. And that is the sheet of the Binyan Sion, that usher lahatzel atzabamamon chavero is a principle that literally means usher, you're not allowed to. According to Rashi, it's absolutely usher. According to Tosfus, it's usher unless you do it with a plausible, realistic intent to pay back. When it comes to a mace, that's not possible. So both according to Rashi and according to Tosfus in the Shulchan Aruch, Says the Binyan Tzion, it is usher to violate the dignity of a mace, even if a human life is at stake. That is... Right. Yes? What, what is the basis for, for stating that a, a mace has rights, the idea of dignity, the idea that you cannot do um, um, experiments or try to find out more about something, you know, be able to save the, uh, uh, help those who are alive? What, what's the basis of that? So the basis of the idea that, that you, can't, uh, you can't utilize the, a, a, the deceased remains of a human in order to help the living is that Halacha views a mace as still having certain rights even, after he is, even though he is dead. He doesn't have title to property in the regular sense. He doesn't own his house anymore. That passes on to his, to his children. He doesn't own his bank account. He doesn't own his, uh, his, his shoes and so on. All his normal property passes on to his heirs. But a mace still does have certain rights. The one right is the right to dignity. Kavra Meis is considered in halacha a form of benadim lachavero. It's, it's a right that a person has, at least according to many poskim. We, we view, in addition to the Isser Sishamayim of Nivel Meis, there's also a, a right to dignity that a Meis has even after he passes away. In certain cases, a Meis can even have certain actual property rights. In certain cases, it says Meis Kona Makomo. In certain cases, a Meis has the right to be buried where he falls assuming the property doesn't belong to somebody else, and so on. In certain cases, a mace actually has... Again, a mace doesn't have the right to his, uh, to his car or his house, but, but the things that are still relevant to him, which, mostly, which basically are things that concern his, <coughs> his dignity and, his, uh, and the, the, the limited interest he still has in this world after he, after he passes away, Halacha considers a mace to still have those rights. Therefore... So how do you balance anybody's rights with the right of the living? If, 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 if I want to go dissect a live person, I want to say for science, I want to go, you know, you, you have some organs, I want to go take a person apart, 
Your person's old anyway. I want to just take out his heart, give it to a child somewhere. How do you balance the rights of anybody with the rights of anybody else? We recognize a system of individual rights, that people have their own rights. Just because you think that, uh, from a utilitarian perspective, the world would be better off if I took something away from, let's say somebody's rich and someone else is poor. So Robin Hood says, if I go and take all his money and give it to the poor, uh, lots of people will be happy. That's true. Maybe that's an argument for having a different tax policy, but you can't just steal. You can't just take property. You can't just take away people's rights in order to... Yes, balance is important, and that's why we have, that's why we have tax policy. That's why we have welfare. That's why we have uh, all kinds of laws that are meant to balance the rights of society against the rights of individuals. But at some point, uh, individ- a, a person's own personal rights can, cannot just be sacrificed to... Help others. So even if... Uh, what's that point? So can disagree what that point is. The, most can say that a person's property rights, whether he's, whether he's alive or dead, have to be sacrificed to save Absolutely. somebody else. Right, well, again, we don't even have to focus on the mace. Let's talk about the Imar and Bavakama. According to Rashi, according to the Binyan Tzion, there are, there are some fields full of produce. Because the owner has property rights in those fields, we're going to put our army in mortal danger. We're going to, we're going to not, you know, let, let's say in a modern case, an enemy is hiding inside a house. So the, you want to go fire a missile at the house, blow up the house in order to kill the enemy. So, so the Binyantian is arguing, in some cases, he can't do that. If, they, if, if there's a non-combatant or a, if, if there's somebody... Again, the laws in war might be different anyway. That's a complicated discussion. The Binyantian is arguing that you have no right to, to, to destroy the property of a, of a private citizen just because you have a military need to do so. Obviously, we don't actually conduct wars like this. We typically do blow things up if they are... Uh, certainly, the, the principles of modern warfare... We, we have principles of proportionality and, and so on, but we do allow some level of collateral damage, even of innocence. You know, if, if the terrorists take human shields or they hide in a hospital or whatever they do, we, like you said, we try to balance it. We try to decide how much interest do we have in killing the, the enemy and how much interest do we have in saving the people who live nearby, the property nearby, and so on. It's a hard question. Yes, it's a hard question. But the, the Binyan and I agree, takes a somewhat extreme extreme view of this. He says that he takes a very absolutist view. He says that individual property rights of people who are not your enemy, who are not enemy combatants, you cannot simply destroy property in order to save human life, your own or others. And, and, he, and, and he even extends that to dead people. He says it's a chiddush when it applies to live people as well. And he extends it to dead people and says that individuals who have rights to property, rights to dignity, those rights cannot simply be sacrificed at the, cannot simply be sacrificed in order to save the lives of others. It's a great chedesh, I'm, I'm not denying it, and most posts can disagree, as we'll discuss soon. What he's saying is kind of intuitively sounds strange, perhaps, and in this case, the halacha lines up with the intuition, just the, 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 the halacha line says, yes, in general, most posts can say, you may do that, you are allowed to take the money, but he held not. I, I don't actually know what most people would say, what their intuition would say about the underlying question we're discussing, about cannibalism when life is at stake. You know, my intuition would say yes. I, I'd be pretty uh, horrified by it. My intuition would still say it's the right thing to do. The, the Lev of Ram is going to return to this question at the end and discuss what would we say kind of intuitively without the Torah, what would we say? I, I, I honestly don't know. If you took a survey of most people in the world, what would, what would be the right thing to do? I'm inclined to think that most people would say yes, that the right of the living... Uh, the needs of the living uh, outweigh the needs of the dead. 
but okay, it's a, it's a question we'll keep in mind. So, the, so getting, going, getting back to the Lev of Ram, he brings the Binyan Tzion, and, and, and that's the reason for the, his whole question. The Binyan Tzion says that when you're dealing with uh, the rights of others, Gezel, or the right to dignity, those rights cannot simply be set aside, even for Pikuach Nefesh. However, says the Lev of Ram, Amnam, Koldvar of Sham, everything he writes in his Chuvos are not correct, are problematic. The subsequent postkim have challenged him and rejected what he says. We'll discuss just a few points briefly. Not going to go through all his arguments, but we're going to discuss briefly what, uh, what he says. So first he turns his attention to the Gemara and Babakama that we just discussed, the Shita of Rashi, that Rashi says that when the Gemara says, Asur la'adam even nefesh, he takes Rashi, he's one of those who take Rashi at face value, a number of Akronim do. First of all, as we said, some Akronim don't think that's what Rashi means at all, as we're about to see. Even those who do think that's what Rashi says, they just say, we don't pass him like Rashi. They say, we pass him like Tosfus. That Asur means you have to pay for it, but it doesn't mean that it's Asur, literally Asur. But the first question is, is that what Rashi means? Does Rashi really mean that? Says the, says the Lev Avram, that, that cannot be what Rashi means. We have such a fundamental rule, Ein l'cha davar nefesh, it's such a fundamental rule. It can't be Rashi means to the contrary. Some things are just so, as there's such fundamental rules of Torah that we know, if something seems to challenge them, we have to reinterpret the, the, the other source. So what does Rashi mean? El Shetzarech Lomar, Shadat Rashi Lefaresh, Tashel Vavakama, Imutul Hatzalatmo, Hainabamakum, Sheinonagay, Aflosophic Bikuach Nefesh. It wasn't really a matter of life and death. Even though the Gemara used language, Ma'u Lehatzalatmo, it doesn't mean that if he didn't burn the fields, he would have died. There was a danger of the Plishtim killing him. Rather, what does it mean? They could have done, they could have been other, other tactics they could, have, they, they could have utilized. They could have pulled back and waited for the Plishtim to come out. They could have, uh, they could have waited them out, maybe. I don't know. They, 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 they could have done different things. There were other ways to avoid being killed by Plishtim who were hiding in the fields. Burning the fields might have been quicker and easier. It might, it might have involved less hassle. Uh, uh, Osman, they could have saved time. They, 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 could have, they could have proceeded more quickly had they just burned down the fields than waiting for the Plishtim to come out or starve them out or whatever. All else being equal, it would have been uh, more convenient, more efficient to burn the fields. But not that, there was, not, that, not that otherwise they had no choice. They actually would have faced grave danger from the Plishtim. That's what the Gemara is talking about, he suggests, according to Rashi. In such a case, the answer was, don't do it. If you have another solution, the fact that you find it more convenient to burn the fields, then we say, but if it was actually literally a matter of life and death, if there were no other effective solution to these plishtim, then avada, certainly it would have been mutter, and Rashi never meant that it would be asur in such a case. That's the, that's the first step of his argument. A, his whole thing is based on Rashi's understanding of the Gemara. That's not what Rashi means, it's not what the Gemara means. That's his first step. What about Tosis and the Rush? Tosis and the Rush say that you can do it, but you have to intend to pay it back. And the Benyantian understands that to mean that, the, that if you don't intend to pay it back, as with a mace, whom you can never pay back, it would be Asir. Says, says the says Leif Avram, that's not a correct reading of Tosis either. He quotes the Maram Shik. Maram Shik disagrees with Benyantian. Maram Shik says that what, what Tosis means is that you, ha- you, have to take, you have to destroy the property sometimes, you have to steal in order to live. But 
it, it's not normally possible, except in the case of a mace, the Benintian's case, it's not normally the case that you also have to not plan to pay it back. Why can't you plan to pay it back? How will that affect your ability to survive? You have to take it. Yes, you need this thing right now. You need this money, this property right now. So Pikuach Nefesh says you have to take it. But with regard to not paying back, Pikuach Nefesh is no dispensation for that because, because why is that a matter of Pikuach Nefesh? Whether you choose to pay back or not, that's not generally going to have anything to do with Pikuach Nefesh. So that's what Tosis means. You have to do it al Shalem because you have no excuse not to plan to pay it back because there's no Pikuach Nefesh on that. But in a case like our case, the case of the mace, where you won't be able to pay it back, of course Pikuach Nefesh is Docha. The, the Shulchan Aruch and Tosis just mean that if it will be possible to pay it back, there's no dispensation to Pikuach Nefesh not to pay it back, not to plan to pay it back, so you have to plan to pay it back. But if you... But, but if in a case like ours, it won't be possible to pay it back, of course it's mutter, because Pikuach Nefesh overrides everything, everything except the three cardinal sins. So again, that's not what Tosis means, it's not what Rashi means, it's not what Tosis means, and once again, he, uh, once again, he rejects the, the, this whole understanding of the Gemara Mavakama, his whole, the Benin understanding of the Gemara, of Rashi, of Tosis, it's all wrong, he says, the Gemara never, even though the Gemara did use this very evocative language of you're not allowed, it's prohibited to save yourself or someone else's property that's not what the Gemara means the Gemara means that you can't do it for free, you can't do it without planning to pay back, you can't do it as he said before, if there are other options that you have other tactics are available to you, you can't do it for convenience, but if push comes to shove if there is really no way to live without doing this, of course it's mutter we apply the regular rule ein l'chadavar ha'omen mefnei nefesh and that is his, and, and that's what he says once again, that's, what he, that, that's his conclusion. He continues, and he says, Let's go back to, uh, to our question. We've explained, we've written, that all the Akronim have dissented from the Binyan Tzion. I don't think it's quite all, but it's many Akronim certainly disagree with Binyan Tzion. Uh, just, to, just to move away from the Lev Avram's tshuva for a minute, the Abiyah Omer, Avadi Yosef, has a tshuva on this topic as well. His question was, someone has young children, Yiladim Kitanim, who are not so healthy, and medical advice is that they should drink every day fresh, freshly milked goat's milk. I don't know if this is uh, generally dispensed medical advice or not, but in this particular case, the, the, the medical advice he got was the children should drink goat milk, fresh, pure, unadulterated goat milk every day, and he would... He would, he would do this, he can't necessarily get that in the supermarket, certainly not uh, wherever this fellow was, but to do this he was going to buy a goat and bring it, this is in Israel somewhere, buy a goat and he would have a goat in his house and he would get milk every day. The, the question was, the question they asked her of Avadia was, the halacha is, Chazal said, you're not allowed to raise small animals like goats in Eretz Yisrael, the concern is that they're not really controllable and they get into other people's fields, they eat other people's stuff, and it's a form of gzela. And the question was, the, the Gemara brings a story, the Gemara seems to indicate that even in a case of Pikuach Nefesh, this Isser of Gezel still applies. The Gemara talks about it, I think the Gemara talks about someone who was gravely ill, and he needed the goat for his, for his refuah, and still the Gemara criticizes him for it. So we're not going to get into the details of that particular case, but Rav Avadia has an entire tshuva dealing with this question, where he brings, of course, all the Akronim who deal with this, who, who discuss this matter, of whether a concern for pikuach nefesh, for the property rights of others, whether that would really override a danger to health, a danger to life, at least. And Rav Vadya says, the Iker Lahalacha is that it is mutter. He brings the Binyan in the course of his tshuva, he brings the Binyan who says 
that because of this Gemara and Baba Kama and Rashi Shita, that he says that it would be Aser. Says Rav Avadia, we don't paskin like this, we don't paskin like Rashi, we paskin like the Shulchan Aruch. He doesn't accept, apparently, the B'nintzion's reading of the, of the Rush and the Shulchan Aruch differently. The Iker Lahalacha is, whatever Rashi means, he says, the Iker Lahalacha is that Gezel is set aside in a case of life and death. Kolshkin, in our case, he says, the case of the goat, it's only a chashash ba'alma panira b'steacha, or it's not outright Gezel. Hopefully you can keep the goat tied up, but just maybe he'll escape occasionally and eat somebody else's stuff. And he, you're going to try to watch it, you're going to guard it, you're going to tie it properly, he says. Certainly, if it's a question of life and death, and it's only a chashash gazel, certainly the ikr lahalacha is, you don't have to be machmer, you can be lenient and not worry about a chashash gazel, but even in the case where it's vade gazel, he says the binyan tzion is not the ikr lahalacha. As Rav Weinfeld says that kol ha'achronim, certainly that's the most poskim, we can certainly accept, saying not like the binyan tzion. Mamela, going back to our case of, of, Ur- of Uruguay and Air Force Flight 571, Less din tzarech boshesh, the makom pikuach nefesh, mutter l'navel hameis, v'lechel es pesaro. You're allowed to do things which are degrading to the mace, you're allowed to eat his flesh. The afshakami yisurim kruchim bezet, there are a number of yisurim involved, he lists three, he, three or four, he says, hanami mace, you're not allowed to have benefit from human remains. Nivel mace, you're not allowed to treat a mace disrespectfully. Bitl mitzvah de kvura, by eating him, you are abrogating the obligation to bury him. Maybe it's a question of Gezel as well, as we discussed earlier. The mace has certain rights, certain property rights. Even though there are three or four, there are many Yisurim involved in eating a dead person. Everything is nevertheless mutter in a situation of Pikuach Nefesh. Now I want to bring a raya, which perhaps some of you, uh, this raya has occurred to you. He brings a raya from Sukkim, he says, from the text of the Chumash. It says in the Tochacha, the, the terrible, the terrible, uh, horrible things that Hashem tells us will happen if we don't do His will. The Torah says in Tochelu, You'll eat your children, he says. In the Tochacha and Dvarim, in Kisavo, in Kisavo, You'll eat the flesh of your children. People who are normally very tender and gentle, when they eat their own children, they'll be so greedy and selfish, they'll refuse to give uh, the, the, the remains of their children to their other children. They'll, they'll hoard it and keep it all for themselves. A very, very uh, stark and uh, horrifying picture of the terrible things that will be going on if we don't do God's will. Says the Lev Avram, when the Torah describes people eating their children, are we discussing people killing their children or people eating their children who have died? Hamuvan Apashti says on the Astaiti, we're talking about people eating their already deceased children. Not they'll have to show them, they'll kill them. We're talking about people who are trying to do the right thing. They're desperate, of, they're desperate, they're dying of starvation. They would never kill somebody. But if other people die, they'll eat them rather than starve to death themselves. He says, the Tochacha in general, when Hashem says he's going to punish us, He's going to punish us by bringing misfortune. He's not going to cause us to do Averis. That, that's not part of the Tochacha, he assumes. I mean, you could say it is, but uh, he says it's not. He says that uh, the Pesukim mean they'll do it when it's mutter. That it means that the, the famine, the starvation will be so extreme that people will it'll be mutter to eat the children. And they'll do it. And they'll hoard the children, not give them to the other children, and so on. And, and so on. He goes on like this for a while, arguing this is the Pshat. He actually notes there is one Gemara which seems to interpret seems to interpret this as meaning they'll kill their children. The Gemara talks about, the Gemara talks about in Yoma, it talks about a certain case where 
someone who used, parents who, who loved their child so much and they used to measure them every year and give that much gold to give them much gold to the base of Mikdash. And then when the when the enemy came and the famine got so great, they, they killed their, they killed the child and ate him. So there is a story in the Gemara about somebody killing their killing their child and eating him. But the the Binyansians, the Leif of Ram says that wasn't the that wasn't what the Tocha is really referring to. That, that that's an extreme and abnormal example. The the case was Doeg ben Yosef and Yoma, that his mother used to measure him every year and give that much gold to the base of Mikdash, and then she killed him and ate him. And that's what Yirmiyah said meant when he said in Tochal and Nash Imperium, Tifuchim, they measured them in Tfachim every year, and then they slaughtered them and ate them when they were so desperate. That's not the Iker Klala, he says. That was just after the Korban, that was later. But the, the Iker Klala, he assumes, means they'll do it Beheter. Again, it's hardly an ironclad raya. It could, mean, it could be a means they'll do it Beheser. But I'll call upon him, he says that that is the, that is the din that you're allowed to, that the, the way he began, he ends the way he began, that it's mutter because of Pikuach Nefesh, despite the fact that there are numerous Isurim involved. It's mutter because of Pikuach Nefesh. In the last. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does Chachamim make of that situation where we know that uh, there was uh, this kind of situation where people had, uh, had, uh, had nothing you have to wait uh, two, two millennia later for the Venezuelan flight you have it as part of uh, Jewish history so that's true, so Max is pointing out that these, these scenarios maybe may, these scenarios certainly have been around in other points in Jewish history so do we find halachic discussion of these questions earlier so I'm not aware of any. The Lev Avram is not aware of any actual discussion from back then. You're right. The question may have come up back then, but uh, but but until we find sources where posts can discuss it, we have to figure it out on our own. You're right. The question certainly could have come up earlier. Absolutely, yes. In the final part of the tshuva, he discusses one last question. Now that we've decided that we're going to eat the, our fallen uh, friends, do you make a bracha on them? He says, shakal. Do you make the bracha of shakal Sounds kind of funny, but it's a serious question. Do you make the bracha of Shekhon Yabedvaro on humans? What's the question? On the one hand, he says it's an explicit halacha that if you eat something that's usur because of sakana, you make a bracha. If you eat something that's non-kosher, you just give into your Yetzirah and eat something that's non-kosher, you don't make a bracha. If you walk into McDonald's, you eat nevela, you eat shrimp, you eat pig, you don't make a bracha. However, if you eat something, a person's dying, a person is in mortal danger as a heter to eat non-kosher food, then you do make a bracha. Bracha rishana, bracha achrana. So insofar as we've established that eating human flesh is mutter in, in a case where you have to, where it's pikoch nefesh, you should make a bracha, it would seem. What's the argument not? He says he's not sure because maybe brachas were only instituted on actual foods, foods and drinks. Asr, mutter, pikoch nefesh, something which is not food, Human flesh, it's not a food at all. It's not eaten except under the most extraordinary circumstances, he says. Maybe there's no bracha. Maybe Chazal did not make brachas on, on things which are fundamentally non-foods. However, he says, that's a chiddush. There's no real precedent for this, he says. If you can eat it, if it's mutter to eat it, in this case at least, and it's nutritious and so on, and it's edible, then he says there is no real reason, to no, no obvious reason why you shouldn't make a bracha. At one point, he brings a machlokis between the Rambam and the Ravid, Ram and the Rabbi talk about Hilchas Tuma and Tara, that uh, if something is an ochel, if something is considered food, it, then it's Makabal Tuma, it has, it, it has certain halachas. If it's not food, then it doesn't. So the, 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 the halacha talks about certain types of organic products which are edible or not edible, or eaten by people or not eaten by people. 
So it talks about Besar Adam. So the Rambam says, if you're Chishev Alav, if you plan to eat it, then it has the status of an Ochel. The Ravid says it doesn't because Batla died to Eitzel Kal Adam. It's not normal. We, 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 we disregard such a crazy, uh, crazy idea because it's just uh, completely out, out of the bounds of normality. Maybe, maybe our question will be totally on that, he says. But even if that's true, he says, the Ravid just says, if you're Chishev, if you plan to eat it, because that's such a bizarre idea, we just dismiss it and disregard your intention. If you actually do eat it, he says, then you, you've concretely established that it's food. You've concretely given it the status of food. Then you should make a bracha, he says. As long as you're not disgusted by it, he says. That's another question. The halacha is you can't make a bracha on, uh, on something that you're disgusted by, even if it's mutter. So people certainly, people in the story, in, in the Uruguayan story, they certainly were disgusted by the food. They ate it because they had no choice, but they, they certainly were cut. So that's another question. You might not make a bracha because, because, uh, because, uh, because if, if you're really disgusted by it, you don't make a bracha. So that's his bottom line, that someone who is not revolted, who's, who's very not, not squeamish about this, if it's mutter because of pikoch nefesh, which it is in this case, should make a bracha, someone who is cut, someone who is disgusted by it and is eating it, has to force it down, is just doing it because he has no choice, but really is, I mean, everyone's doing it because they have no choice, but is just really disgusted by it, then would not make a bracha. So that, that's the end of his analysis. He just winds up, he says, the paragraph I mentioned earlier, he says, the very last paragraph, he says, I concede, he says, this entire discussion is revolting, it makes us a little sick inside, he says, I nevertheless decided to write this whole discussion down. Two reasons, he says. First of all, it's Torah. Torah is sometimes uh, pleasant and sometimes a little bit less pleasant on a superficial level, but it's Torah. So it's Torah, it's objectively valuable, and therefore we write it down. One could argue, of course, there's diff- it's a big Torah. There's infinitely much Torah to learn. You can just pick something else to discuss if you... Uh, until you've learned everything else, maybe you could prioritize and discuss things that are not so disgusting, especially if it's not really Nagel Amaisa. Okay, but it's Torah, he says. It's Torah, and it's therefore the fact that it's Torah automatically legitimizes its discussion. Shainis, he says, a very a curious argument. Shainis, he says, Yesh Pazem Musar Haskel. We can learn an important lesson, an important uh, lesson in Hashkafa from the Halachir. Lahachnia Sichleinu Vedatenu Ladas Torah. We can see that it's important to subordinate our, our intuitions, our opinions to Das Torah. How do we see that? Achilles Basar Adam, mace, eating cannibalism, eating human remains. Afki Nirem Mius, even though it seems horrible. Some of the people in the Uruguay story initially refused to eat it, they just couldn't bring themselves to eat it. Mutual Pikuach Nefesh. Halacha says human intuition is not always so reliable. It's Pikuach Nefesh, so it's Mutter. Adarab, it's not only mutter, mitzvah kavod. Saving your life is a mitzvah. Ulu'umazeh, elsewhere Chazal prohibited certain things that we would have thought are certainly mutter, maybe. Amru Chachamim, Yomos Faltasaprimu Me'achare Hageder. Famous Gemara, the Gemara talks about someone who uh, had some kind of romantic obsession with a certain woman, and he was dying, he was literally lovesick, and he was dying, his heart was literally breaking in some sense. And the Gemara discusses whether we can let him indulge himself with her in various ways. The Gemara says, no, not just we don't let him consummate the relationship, we don't even let him talk to her from behind the machitza. Even that level of uh, concession of the bounds of propriety and sneers we don't do. 
when it comes to erva, even a, even a bizrayu, even a uh, relatively minor infraction of erva is prohibited, even if, even even in the case of life and death. So Mizer Nilmodi says we see from the juxtaposition of these two things, achilas besaradzam, which is horrifying. We, we we might not even think it's mutter for pikuach nefesh, is mutter. Talking to a woman behind the machitza, we would think, what's the harm in that? Is usher, even if it means he's going to die. We see from this juxtaposition, Yes, halacha is sometimes uh, counterintuitive, and we have to accept that. that, that this, is, this is a very loaded doctrine. This is something I struggle with a lot. There are other, certainly other, G'delei Teru takes this position. Rav Salavechik. Rav Salavechik is quoted as saying, that all the Torah is chukim, all the Torah is divine wisdom beyond human comprehension. Some mitzvahs, we can readily see that, you know, shatnas and paraduma and so on. Even mitzvahs that seem to make sense, he says, when you study them more carefully, you'll see that the, the morality of the Torah is beyond human comprehension. He gives an example. He says, if, there's, uh, if, he say, he says, if you have ten people, and, uh, and they're all going to die unless you, unless you turn one of them over. Unless, I forget the exact case he's talking about, but they're, they're all going to die unless, uh, unless one of them is sacrificed. A uh, utilitarian ethicist, a modern, uh, modern thinker might say the, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few or the one, and that the, the, the utilitarian principle is that, that the goal is to maximize utility and, and sacrifice one for the sake of the others. Nevertheless, the Torah says, no, the Torah says, lo sirtzach. Rav Salvechik assumes that the utilitarians are fundamentally correct, he says, that the utilitarians are uh, are basically right that that it's uh, that the it, it would make a lot more sense to it would make a lot more sense to simply sacrifice one for the good of the for the good of the many and the Torah tells us that we can't the Torah tells us don't do that so the Rosalvechik says even losertzach it's an ethic beyond human comprehension that the fact that the Torah does not dovetail with our ethical sensibilities and we have to understand that. I have a lot of trouble with this. I mean, it's true that the Torah is divine wisdom, and therefore, if the Torah was simply human intuition, we wouldn't need the Torah. We can just consult our intuitions. Obviously, we all accept that we aren't always going to get it right. Humans disagree. Humans have violent disagreements about ethics sometimes. Obviously, we need a Torah to tell us what's right, and not every human will always be right. Not every, not every human can always say that his ethical intuition is always right about a given case. But the notion that we have to fundamentally accept that... Uh, that our seichel is uh, inadequate, uh, that, that the Torah is fundamentally incomprehensible, that it, the Torah is fundamentally not subject to, uh, to you know, rational comprehension, that seems like a uh, very broad claim. Again, I don't know how far the Lev Avram really means to go. He might, just mean, he might just be making the more moderate claim that we shouldn't always be so quick to rely on our moral intuitions because we see the Torah sometimes has very different opinions. Again, personally, I, I don't know what all of you think about the, the ultimate question here. What, is, what does your moral intuition tell you about cannibalism if you're going to die unless you eat the human remains? I probably would think that my intuition would say mutter. So I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm not sure if Leif Avram thought that it was mutter or not. I don't know what he thought the, the svara was, the pashup shat. But I'll call upon him. Ladina, he says, that is, that is, that is perfectly clear. That is the dominant consensus, the, the, the preponderant opinion of the poskim, is that ein nefesh, except for very few enumerated things, and cannibalism is not one of them. If cannibalism is necessary to survive, then you do it, despite the fact that under normal circumstances, cannibalism entails various isurim, but if it's a matter of life and death, then it is mutter.